Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. Can Indigenous thinking change the world? In episode 18 of The B-Side, I speak to Tyson Yunkerporter, an academic, art critic, researcher and author who belongs to the Appalachian clan in far north Queensland. Tyson and I discuss his new book, Sand Talk, a truly remarkable, mind-bending, two-way learning experience. It's a fun and fascinating read, filled with big, challenging ideas covering just about everything from echidnas to evolution, the economy to the environment, Schrodinger's cat to spirituality, all through the lens of Indigenous thinking. We chat about what happens when our accepted societal, economic and global systems are viewed from this perspective and how we can shape our future for the better by applying its wisdom. Tyson Yunkerporter is perhaps one of Australia's most interesting and exciting thinkers he truly sees things from a unique, universal, big-picture perspective and manages to unpack it all in a way that is really fun and accessible for all of us, no matter where we're from. We cover shed loads of ground, from politics to coronavirus, so it gets pretty deep, raw and a little provocative. So settle in, ready your mind, and enjoy the episode. Cheers. I'm in the house with Tyson Yunkerporter. Tyson is an academic and arts critic, a researcher. Uh, he belongs to the Uplich clan. He is the author of the amazing, mind-blowing, hugely conceptual sand talk, which I'm super pumped to talk about. This book is really going to blow your mind, people, wherever you are in the world, I tell you what. But first I want to say hello to Tyson. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate you spending a bit of time talking to us. And uh, how have you been? Yeah, really good. Thanks for connecting too, bros. We've had some really good yarns. Yeah, we have. It was really good for me. I was incredibly nervous about um, <laughs> reaching out to you and, and having you on the show. It's purely because, you know, it's just such amazing work and I've heard you talk about it. So I thought, where do I even begin, man? I mean, we could, I could yeah. sit sit around and just yarn with you on pretty much everything. And so it well, was- That's not of- our fault. That, that's the marketplace. They build up- uh- they build up creators, like you know, anybody artist or author or anybody. They build them up to be these these paragons or something. Yeah, these demigods who are just so yeah. out of touch. Whereas, and it's just it's not that. <laughs> and which is the the opposite of what your book is about. It's putting all these like really research heavy conceptual thoughts into into people's hands. It's making all those thoughts super accessible. Well, let, let's look at it for a minute. It's it's, it's this is a you know, English is a trade creole uh, for a particular you know recent economic system mm. developed over the last half a millennium kind of thing, and it's it's quite deliberately separated a whole heap of things that shouldn't be separated. You know, yeah. so arts has been separated from life, and none of us human beings used to have the word art in our languages. You just don't have it as a separate concept. It's just something you do. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in your life world. You just do it. And not just you, everybody does it. You know, it's the same music until very recently. Bloody every other house had a guitar or a piano in it. and People are gathered together and just sing together, you know? 
that's what music used to be. But then all of a sudden it's like, no, only one in like 50 million people is allowed to do that. And then we're going to like, uh, no, you don't, the community doesn't own that music anymore. We own that music and we're going to distribute it in our regions and anyone yeah. out of that region is not allowed to get it. And the rest of you, if you want to enjoy the music, you don't get to hear the real sound. You can, you can enjoy this recorded sound, which is only 1% of the actual sound, you know, cause they only focus in, in what they record in developing that technology. They only focused on, you know, um, this tiny percentage of the sound that is just, um, it's just what we're, what we're focusing on with our frontal lobes. So you're not feeling that music. It's not going through you. It's not going in. It's not doing what music is supposed to do. And it's the same with any art. And it's the same with literature, freezing these ideas in time and putting yeah. them on a page with speech sounds recorded in these little Oh, symbols. man, I've wanted to talk to you about the speech sounds. And they're and just like, that's yeah. what we have. And all that stuff is separate. And only these elevated demigods here can do it but they're not really demigods because you know they fucking work for us <laughs> you know mate we've jumped out the gates place. i love it <laughs> yeah we're, we're just all we're all trapped in this hideous system so you know yeah. i just i just talk to everybody mate so i know I... Go, oh, i'm so nervous to me like why yeah um, you know yeah. i'm just a, a piece of crap just like you Hey, you know what? For our North American listeners and for everyone, there's this concept in um, Aboriginal Australian Indigenous culture called a yarn. I want Tyson and I to have a bit of a yarn. Just for the audience, Tyson, can you explain what a yarn is? You know, uh, there's a lot of different levels of yarn, yarning, um, you know, but it is a, a, like a cultural modality. And the idea is to just uh, bring stories together. You know, yeah. uh, bring t- people together with different stories and have those stories coexist with each other yeah. and sort of form an aggregate, a general aggregate of truth. Even if that uh, all that data, a lot of it is contradictory, um, it just kind of, you know, finds its own place in there respectfully. And it's no talking stick. So like, you know, like you might jump in there and go, hey, talking stick. Yeah, I've seen this fellow. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not like, you know. I can't be into it. It's not like I got to monologue freely and everybody's got to wait respectfully yeah. until totally, I, yeah. you know, busted that nut. You know, it's <laughs> not. I will interrupt Skip you that. though, mate. I can guarantee yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> man, jump in and back and forth. It's got to be stories coming together and it's not a yarn. First thing I do want to interrupt you on, and you, you just jumped out the gate and you started talking about um, inefficient ways of communicating and sharing ideas, man. And I know you've written about this at length um, and it, 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 it's central to your work, you know, this symbolism and so on. And I loved how you drew a parallel to music, this whole connection to creativity. That representation of meaning. The common story is that that only started like, bloody 20,000 years ago or something. How accurate is that, though? I mean, surely yeah, not. Yeah, not. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you know that's, there's a um, million-year-old shells with symbols carved on them. Mm. Million, million years. We've got a million years of meaning-making. How can certain people have a monopoly on creativity when yeah. we've all been doing it for such exactly. a very long time? And I know we want to cut that off. Oh, no, sapiens. Let's go with sapiens. Sapiens, but, yeah, like, yeah. It's not a different species from Erectus. Because mm. they bred together and, yeah. you know, and then their children were able to breed. So that's not a different species. The proliferation of DNA testing has mm. 
unearthed the harsh reality that many of our Europeans, we've got a percentage of Neanderthal uh, DNA in us. I've got quite a low percent, so I'm pretty proud of that. But, you know, (laughs) some of our Western European uh, brethren have like up to 5% and you think that's 5% you know, um, Neanderthal DNA. I love how the discourse has moved away from the the Neanderthals being this, these thuggish, archaic beings to, oh, they were really spiritual, man, and they were incredibly yeah. creative. <laughs> you know, well, just, the, yeah. There's this, you know, there's this kind of cultural pattern coming out that, that I've, I've discerned through thousands of movies and books, mm. Mm. you know, and then if, if you look through all the old... Uh, Law, all the Viking sagas, the the Pia Gint suite, mm. all these things—they're all about um, kind of you know guys running off and you know like being seduced by these troll princesses. Ah, uh, yeah. And I yeah. suspect that that troll myth was about a memory, a cultural memory of um, of Neanderthal communities or tra- traditional uh, tra- transitional Neanderthal communities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't that fascinating? The other thing you picked up on earlier was the the music and efficient ways of communicating ideas. If you talk about music being a central language to humanity, part of the ways we would communicate through culturally or um, through that oral storytelling, literal written sound words can't convey the same emotions as music. You think about it, man, like if I just play a single note or a series of notes, I don't have to say a single word, but I can make you feel something. Those notes will evoke that emotion. Words could never really do that with such efficiency. Like you can, you can write write those things into existence, those feelings, but it's a lot less efficient, right? You know what I mean? Well, it's only really relatively recently that um, the bardic tradition was um, was ended, Mm. You know, so in the northern hemisphere, you still had that um, that strong tradition of the bard, yeah. um, who would you know tell all the stories, um, but you know, like big stories, you know, a, a story that might take three days in the telling, yeah, you know, yeah. completely memorized, wrote by heart, you know, isn't that amazing? Um, and and you know, often accompanied by music. You look at the works of Homer, and and those have been analysed in terms of. Um, these weren't just written by a dude called Homer. They were written down yeah. <laughs> by him yeah, because yeah. they were they were obviously quite old oral texts because there were a lot of devices in there that are common to um, that are common mnemonics yeah. in, in oral texts in the Bardic tradition. So that's it's quite an old one. Yeah, you know? and we learn these song cycles, you know, in in Aboriginal cultures that are that are like that as well. You know, yeah. many 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 of them. And we've clearly been doing it for a very long time, probably for at least a million years. I know that that number would make a lot of people uncomfortable, but we have a million years of different ways of being and doing and knowing and all kinds of different modalities and governance structures and economies, a million years of things that we've tried that have worked. And now we're limited to like two models Neither, neither of which work, and and both of which are, you know, a forced choice between one or the other. Well, it's that simplification, that sort of infantile. It's it's trying to create 
the complexity of nature into this sort of juvenile kind of um, simplicity. You know, it's this right and wrong, this good and bad. This has put situations, societies, cultures into these very basic kind of camps. And we're seeing that in politics. We're seeing that in pretty much everything we do, um, you know. I don't know, the cultural infrastructure that's that's just there to support the notion that some people can own the land, the land that's supposed to be there for us, providing everything, you know, our creativity, our inspiration, our law, our, our sustenance, our shelter, our relatedness, our connection, our everything, and more than anything, our meaning, you know, these are all things provided by the land. So when the land was taken away from us as human beings over the last few centuries, and there was nowhere left to run to for any of us, um, but particularly over the last century, uh, since the industrial era started, you know, that removal of people from the land and that conversion of land into capital owned, owned by a few, um, that's the thing. That was our moment of dispossession as human beings. And um, that was when we lost something very important. You speak of narcissism in that way, in that who are we to think that we're above the land? Like we were once with it. We relied on it. We, we treated, treated it with respect and we were part of it. It wasn't there for us. Like yeah. animal husbandry, you know, we weren't controlling it um, yeah. through rapacious extraction of its resources. And, and when you speak like this, it feels like you're being a, a, a huge lefty. You know, but, you know, yeah. where did it become um, okay to treat the land as it was something that we owned? And I hazard a guess it was around the Neolithic sort of Bronze Age period where we started farming and so on, and, yeah. and, and we applied the same farming principles. Just because of the cognitive makeup of a person who's attracted to the left, they just have more of an appreciation of aesthetics and things like that. So mm. you know, they're looking to this concept of wilderness as separate from society, mm. um, you know, as like, yes, it's a source of natural resources to extract and try and be sustainable about that, but also it's a source of uh, inspiration and creativity and beauty to extract. <laughs> yeah. So it's even an extractive relation yeah. you know, to, to, you know, nature worship in that way um, yeah. from the left. So it's, it's neither of those things. Uh, mm. A human embeddedness in a landscape is, um, doesn't sit anywhere on the political spectrum. But, you know, I mean, I guess anything like just saying that out loud is a bit of an assault on the, on the superstructures of this civilization and anything that's a critique or an unpacking has been sort of, you know, um, thrown into this idea of postmodernism, which is thrown into the left. I mean, that, that's a silly idea because, you know, I've heard the libertarian right sprouting exactly the same, same thing, yeah. things, you know. Yeah, exactly the same kind of critique. I see uh, far alt-right buddy people spouting stuff that's exactly mirror image of Foucault mm. and then in the same breath denouncing postmodernism and going, hey, bros, have you actually read this postmodernism that you're, <laughs> you're attacking? Uh, because you're saying it. But anyway, we won't go into politics. Yeah. What we will do, though, let's start from the beginning. Man, we jumped out the gates. We really did. <laughs> we jumped out the gates. We may have already covered everything I wanted to speak about. No, we haven't. But um, <laughs> <laughs> let's go back, Tyson. Let's go back. Um, so tell us, where are you from? What do you do? What's your backstory? 
Um, oh, my backstory. Uh, where are you going to start? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess, well, let's look at our, our lives as, um, you know, so, so you have, I guess, you, your life is structured, I guess, in 15-year increments. Yeah. And every yeah. 15 years you're supposed to go through something. Yeah. You know, it used to be ceremony. Um, I can relate to that big time. Yeah. It used to be ceremony that you'd you'd get every 15 years, and if you pass through that, you'd, you'd progress, and eventually after about four of those, you'd, you'd become like a a good man, a, <laughs> you know, something like that. But I've been quite, um, you know, retarded in that. So I guess I finished three of those cycles uh, badly. And so I'm, I'm 47, maybe 48 this year, I think. Um, I don't know, I'm losing I'm track. 45, mate. I think I've been yeah. through three of them. So I'm into the Just. fourth iteration and I'm still not sure what that one's going to be about. I guess the first part of my life and coming up into being a young fellow, I, I don't know, it was kind of, well, I guess my 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 identity was sort of shaped by really flawed doctrines about race. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, mongrelism kind of thing, like, you know, mm. and uh, part, you know, part Aboriginal, all that kind of thing that I, that I, and that idea that, you know, it was an inheritance of bad things and, but a kind of a weird sort of a pride in that black, it makes you tougher or something, you know, I recall, you know, as a, as a, what they call a young man, you know, boasting up a bit, you know, that it's, you know, ah, like my, that my part of my genetic, genetic inheritance is being really good at drinking and fighting, you know, and, and I quite define myself by those things. And as a, um, an ambiguously non-white person, you know, like someone who, you know, so, you know, it's your every week of your life, couple of times a week, you know, someone's going to say to you, um, what are you? You know, you're not white. What are you? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm Aboriginal. Oh, no, you're not Aboriginal. No, you're white. You know, it's like, yeah. well, you just told me I wasn't white, but anyway, <laughs> that's fine, man. Um, no, no, you're, um, you're Arab or something, you yeah. know, like everybody's got this, uh, this, colonial authority to like just project whatever they want onto you. Mm, mm. So that's why I never care about my bio or bio, what you yeah. say about my yeah. job or yeah. tell people who ask like, yeah, whatever, whatever you want to, I know you're going to, no matter what, how I describe myself, you're going to project stuff onto me anyway. You know, I have people writing me letters about the book and saying things to me. I think, man, did you even read it? It's fine. You, you just projected whatever you wanted to see. That's, that's cool. <laughs> and yeah. some people that's, uh, that's how it goes. But anyway, so the first part of my life was, you know, um, just mostly confusion and, mm. and then just wrong story, like wrong mm. story about Aboriginality being a genetic bloody thing that, that I only have part of and just the bad parts in this nihilistic grieving process of you know inflicting myself on the world as an angry man and um, i think a lot of australians can relate to that uh, especially those yeah. who do have um some known or um suspected indigenous uh, heritage uh, so you know my advice would be just just wait quiet you know learn for yourself um you know 
find out what you can ancestrally connect with the land, you know, be with community, you know, talk quietly to your elders when you connect with them and just sit and come alongside and just see what happens. Um, That's really good advice. Yeah. 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 And, and I guess, you know, you know, we're in a massive time of flux globally, you know, emergence is an important thing. You have to allow, you know, systems of transition and new ways of being to emerge because that's Mm -hmm. how things happen in a complex adaptive system. These things aren't planned. These things aren't carried out with a 10 point plan that Mm -hmm. they just, they just kind of happen. If, if the flows are allowed to happen, you Mm -hmm. know, within that system. Mm -hmm. So I, I I guess just live your life and flow, just flow, flow with it. Don't try and force anything. Just let things happen and you'll Mm -hmm. end up where you're supposed to be. I mean, I've done that my whole life and I don't particularly like where it's taken me. Um, but I just honor that and do what I'm supposed to do from moment to moment. For me, it's about the knowledge, but it's about the processes of the knowledge. It's the knowledge processes, the how and the thinking and the, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I've, I've found that to be a much more nuanced thing. People liked me when I was just performing the culture and, you mm. know, telling the life story and, all that sort of thing and going through the histories and all that kind of business when it was on the surface like that, people liked it and they were comfortable with it. I think people have been quite uncomfortable with my, the last couple of decades. Mm. We're looking at that sort of meta, meta knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. for me, that, that makes me who I am and I'm just being that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't even like to call it an identity because I'm not very interested in identity. I find that it's just that it's it's something that's been taken over by this neoliberal system. Uh, it's the same as a music brand, or you know, it, it's just branding. It's the same problem as with the music industry. It's taking everything that you are and reducing it to a set of characteristics, and then just you know, um, value adding to that, repackaging it, sanitizing it branding it and putting it out into the marketplace. That's what an identity is, that English word identity. Oh, well, let's use the Aboriginal word, though. Oh, hang on a sec. There isn't one. Yeah, yeah, isn't that, isn't that amazing? There's yeah. no human word for identity because mm. it's not needed. That's fascinating. That really is. We just are. Yeah. We are, and we're from a place. We belong to a place, you know, and if we're like um, – if we marry into another place or we're adopted into another place and then that we, we are of that place of that place and that goes back to what we first started talking about you know when we became separate and we thought we could dominate the land which we come from mm, yeah. which is at odds with just the very nature of how we should be yeah you you, you are yeah. from a place you respect this yeah. place this place is part of you you know it's yeah that's it because of COVID, I haven't been able to go home. Um, mm. Where's home for you now? So it's uh, Western Cape York. Right? Yeah. So, right, it's 3,000 kilometres away from where I'm staying in Melbourne now. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's very hard to not, not go back because you see yourself changing. Yeah. Right? So all your, your, you no longer have any atoms in you from there. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, You're just shedding all the time until it's all gone if you stay away. So I try not to be away from home for longer than you know months at a time like i need to get back regular 
it yeah. costs a lot of money though, so that's hard because it's yeah, a, for sure. It's you're going from trip. one, you're our um, of Australia right but up. I've, but I've always managed it, you know, especially over the last ten years. For most of the last ten years, and before that, even I'm just living up up in Cape York anyway. You know, so I was close even when I was like seven years in Cairns. It it was still close, and and there's lots of family there all the time anyway. So it's it's having that and being able to go back. One time I was away for longer than six months. And when I went back home, um, the dogs didn't know me anymore. <sighs> My smell had cha- like I'd changed that much from being away that the dogs didn't know me, and you know, and it took a while for the place to get back in me again. You yeah, know, through the food and the air and the water and the bodies and touch and yeah, you know yeah. everything, the the dirt getting into you, and my smell changed back again, and I was just like. Okay, I'm back. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you go away. That lasts about six months, and then then yeah. you change again, and you take on the smell of this other place. Just, yeah, <laughs> a place changes you, and it changes yeah. how you talk. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, it changes everything. So a language comes from a place. It comes out of a bioregion. Do you think everyone has a place? Do you think that, like, if you asked me where my place was, it would be on the central coast at a little beach called Spoon Bay. And I spent my, as my grandparents' house, my mum, she used to send me up to my grandparents' place uh, on weekends and school holidays. So pretty much it was my second home. And I'd go down to the Spoon Bay. I knew every single rock, like the back of my hand. I could tell you where the, and I loved fishing. Mm. I could tell you what rock pools not to fish in because you'd catch eels. I could tell you where the wobbygongs were and to avoid those. I could tell you where to get your bait, mate. And that is my place. It really is. You know, I, I feel at home there and I still to this day. Do you think everyone has mm-hmm. a place? Well, no, I, I don't think, um, you know, I think your way of coming into that place and, and just the complexity that you've just alluded to just with that little picture, I don't think most people come into a place you know, my favorite place that they have, and I don't think they, I don't think very many people um, in this industrialized culture um, are, are connected enough, you know, in recent memory, you know, uh, to anything that would direct them to um, even be able to see a place in the way that you've described. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. I, and I think that, that what you, your way of connecting with that place was, uh, it was an inherited memory thing from, uh, you know, a recent ancestral connection that wasn't completely eradicated yet and that f- fragments of that, uh, you know, have been passed to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If not explicitly with declarative knowledge, then, you know, inferred in other ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, th- through your parents and their parents. And, you know, I, I think that was enough of a fragment for you to be able to connect with that place in that way and to have that understanding of it. Yeah. Uh, but arguably, you would probably connect the same way with any place you went to. I mean, th- those skills are transferable. That lens is transferable. You know, you can apply that lens to anything. And you probably could uh, apply it to geopolitics if you yeah. were looking at around the world as well. And I guess that's what the book's about. That's why, like, you know, I, I don't want to get tangled up too much in uh, or just all the little minutiae. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of, of lifestyles and, and cultural methods for like, you know, uh, fixing a head on the tip of a spear and, and stuff like that. It's kind of like, that's not where I'm focused. You know, those things are just mine. You know, so my, my, you know, my stories, my, my experiences, 
you know, my practice, you know, on mm-hmm. country, you know, 99% of it, that's just mine for me. And I could perform aspects of that for other people, but I've, I've done that before. And, and I used to do the life story all the time, you know, and, um, and people liked it. They really liked it, but it was, it was, it was unproductive apart from just re-traumatizing me and making me depressed. It also just, um, it detracted from anything else that I might say. And there was no applicable wisdom to be drawn from that story. Just like, uh, just, you know, unproductive prepackaged feelings for everybody to have. At what point did you feel as though you were starting to shape this macro kind of universal collection of connections to build this story that can sort of elevate you above the, the, the expected narrative you would find yourself having when you're in your first or second um, lifetime. You know, you're, you're, you know, you talked about the first 15 years being trauma, the second 15 years being, what was it, one of discovery and what the most recent 15 years being? Uh, I, you know, I'd almost say that for the whole first 30 years was just stumbling around, scratching my ass and bumping into things. Really? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> What was the awakening? Uh, what inspired it? I think the, you know, so in complexity theory terms that we, you'd refer to uh, basins of attraction, mm. you know, um, and there, there's seldom just one catalyzing, you know, event or moment or strange attractor or something that is like the, aha, that's it there. Um, usually it's, it's just an accumulated, aggregated sense-making activity. And, and look, I, I don't particularly think that I'm, I'm anywhere special now where I'd go, ah, yes, that's where it changed. And now I've become a success. I don't feel like that. You know, I, I, like, I don't feel like I have any particular um, knowledge or perspective or wisdom. That's, that's, Mm. um, that's great. You know, I, I, but I do, I do find that in my ignorance, just engaging with people, but feeling okay with the ignorance, (laughs) you know, just feeling okay about that. And, you know, a lot of our old fellas, they're like, they have this, this overwhelming dignity and, and you just, you're in awe in their presence and all that kind of thing. It's just, I'm like, I just, I've never learned the dignity thing. Yeah. It's something that I crave, but I don't have, um, yeah. you yeah. know, I'm, I'm just quite cheeky and I'm quite chaotic and I just enjoy interesting things and I like yeah. things to be funny and I'm curious. And I think people like to be curious and I think they like to be able to engage with higher order thinking without having to stop the party, like anything, it's like, right. Okay. I'm going to do my deep thinking now and I'm going to read. I'm, I'm finally going to get through Thomas Piketty. God damn it. It's really interesting, but it's, it's just, I have to stop the party. It's like anything that you have to like go, no, I won't have that beer before I read this. Then, then just don't read it. <laughs> it should still be fun. Yeah. I wrote a thinking should still be fun. And if it's not, then it's damaging your brain. Mate, let's talk about your book then, because that's a pretty good segue. Um, you're, I'm going to start by reading some of the quotes. Compliments are really hard. Are you the sort of guy that doesn't feels uncomfortable I, with compliments? No, it, it's all right if it's true. I'm, yeah. I'm really happy with it. I, I mean, it sounds like I'm self-deprecating and everything, but yeah, I just, yeah. you know. Yeah, so I know. I know what's good, and I've got no problem with, like, people saying what's good. I mean, if there's a purpose for it. 
according to Bruce Pascoe, which I absolutely love, props Sir Bruce with his book, uh, Dark Emu, um, he says, a book of cultural philosophic intrigue, read it. Who else? What have we got? We've got one, another one. I'll read you one more. Radical ideas bursting with reason, you know, and, mate, that's essentially the consensus across the board. It's this, this big thinking, accessible thinking, and it's really good that we're elevating the role of Indigenous thinking on a global, mm. universal scale. I think that's really cool. Why don't we talk about where the inspiration came from, how you came up with the idea for this, what the process was in bringing this this story to life, you know? It was just my participation in the flows of my life and environment. Um, that's it. What is sand talk about? Sand talk is a modality of knowledge transmission where you transmit knowledge through visual images drawn on a surface, basically. And that surface can be the ground or, you know, any surface, really. Yeah. But it's basically, you know, people sit around and there are different forms and things and people will do. And it's, yeah, done in different ways all over Australia. A lot of Aboriginal art is temporary. I mean, there are... There's, there's permanent art forms that are supposed to stand the test of time and they're supposed to be like uh, law places, uh, like sure. learning places where you take people to, um, you know, get knowledge in a different way you know, mm-hmm. from that place, from that rock or whatever. But a lot of the art is temporary and has always been temporary. And just one of the protocols of sand talk is when you've finished, you know, showing your image on the sand, creating that, you wipe it away, you clear it. Sure. Uh, there, there are bigger, deeper ceremonial forms that are often secret, sacred things where men or and or women in men's or women's business will use lots of different materials um, to create lots of different colours in these big these big sand paping, paintings. And it's a bit like the practice in Buddhism, you know, with those big mandalas they make. It's when as soon as it's it so much work goes into it. Uh, but then as soon as it's done, it's oh. it's wiped away. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. that's what art is. Art is a living thing. And it's, it sits in the spaces in between in your relations between yourself and other entities. It goes back and to what we were saying. That's where the knowledge yeah. sits. And it's living knowledge and any representation of that knowledge. It, it takes on the spirit of that thing, of what's being represented. It takes on the spirit of it, you know. And to leave it there as a permanent thing is, is a drain on that spirit. Uh, my mom, the old fellas, will tell me, you know, that a lot of the, the carvings that have become really popular around the world from my community of like totemic, you know, entities, mm. um, these are things that are usually done rarely and, and, and traditionally are just for ceremony. Mm. And they have so much power, those images, those statues, those carvings, they can make a person sick. Really? Yeah. If you don't, if, if a protection isn't applied to people coming, viewing that or coming near it, then they can get sick from it. It's got that much power. Going back on, picking up on that point, you said that impermanence. I <clears throat> Obviously, I've worked in advertising as a creative for um, some time. I'm no longer in advertising um, and in marketing. Um, but the one, the one conversation I have with people, and even through this podcast, is the impermanence. I have to keep creating. I have to keep doing it, and I don't know why. And it always feels, and it's always described as a spiritual need to fill some sort of gap that is left behind once whatever you've created has been mm-hmm. completed. And it speaks to your point around the impermanence. If it was meant to be permanent, then you go, oh, mate, job done. I've, I've, I've created. Now I could just sit back and relax and just enjoy it. But, you know, it's the need to create. Yeah. It's the need to constantly produce the art. 
yep. there's some themes in your book, Santor, just hanging on your book for a bit, because I do want to sort of touch on some of the mm. themes. Oh, sorry, I just have to say, it's it's pretty much just pop science. <laughs> it, just enjoy it. And enjoy like, it. Yeah, fair enough. No, I know. It is, it, it is incredibly it basically, accessible. It's, it's, a, it's a cognitive adventure that will trigger patterns of thinking that will help you find fragments of who you are. I love that. Uh, why you didn't you say that yourself. before, mate? <laughs> it's an experience. I use, I use us too. The dual first person, okay, and that's uh, that only exists in Aboriginal languages. It's not in English, so I have to translate it as us too. I use that a lot because the idea is that we're bringing it. Your stories are part of this book, and that's our stories coming together and sitting alongside each other for a bit, and um and and your story continues, um but there's there's different bits of your story that you'll be aware of when you leave, and that's the book. That's the knowledge you'll take away from it. It'll be knowledge you had when you arrived that you didn't see yet. And you'll see things in yourself you didn't see, and you'll just continue. There's also, unfortunately, um, old man symbols in there, and they will. Um, I should have a it should have a warning label. They will change you at the molecular level, at the genetic level. And this is feedback I've had, like from many different people from all around the world. This book changed me at the genetic level. Oh my god, yeah. my partner doesn't recognise my smell. He says I smell different. Isn't that amazing? You know what I mean? This has changed my physiology. You know, <laughs> uh, people say that. And, and I'm talking like real conservative old people who don't believe in any, you know, anything vaguely spiritual. And they, they feel changed by this. And I keep telling them, yeah, that's not the book, bros. That's, that's old man Joma symbols. They're designed to do that. So, you know, um, the book's one thing. Those symbols are another thing, the sand talk symbols, and they will change you. Well, that's, 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 what, what do they say? I don't know what the research is, I should, but I don't. It's the, um, mm. humans are hardwired to decipher symbols and patterns and so on. And we're getting into this molecular kind of deep sort of <laughs> DNA based um, science yeah. here, aren't we? Which I don't know anything about. But what I will do, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about this. And you've kind of already mentioned this in our um, discussions earlier. If you don't move with the land, the land will move you. If you could speak to me a little bit about that. It just is what it says, you know, <laughs> but moving with the land, I guess that that's the tricky thing. Eh? People, I guess they would they would imagine what so what does that mean? We've got to be nomads or something, but that's not what it is. It's about adaptation. You know, if you're not being shaped by your habitat, if you're not embedded in the habitat that you're being shaped by and that you're responding to in real time, that you're co-evolving with, um, if if you're not doing that, then you're not moving with the land. And when the land changes, you'll be stuffed, especially if you're trying to hold onto your old system that's no longer valid. I love that. Another one is um, finding the most creative solutions in the most marginal viewpoints. I mean, that is quite topical at the moment. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it's 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 the way you know all, all of our stories together they create create an aggregate, uh, which is the truth, approximates the truth. Even even if there are things in there that contradict each other, it's it's the entire picture that um, mm. that makes a workable map of your reality, um, and you know, all of those have to be included. Um, I mean, you could look at your bell curve, you know, in, in statistics. And I guess, you know, if, if you want to describe the system, you want to describe the reality, then you need to talk about the majority that are in the center of the bell curve. Yeah. You know, that, that characterizes the system. But at the same time, that's not a complete picture unless you look at the tails of the distribution. 
you know, the ones that descend that are this way and quite divergent. Um, you know, the, the, the E minuses <laughs> and then <laughs> the outliers. Ones that, well, your ones at this end that are quite divergent, your A plus pluses, you know, um, those are interesting things to look at and they sort of give a lot of the flavor to the system and they're, they're, you know, it's that, uh, they're the little pattern breakers because any pattern, if, if it doesn't experience disruption, it just stagnates and falls apart. You know, so your outliers are important. They kind of, um, you know, although the majority will lead, it's like with flocking of birds, you know how they do that on schooling of fish, you know, how yeah, they do that yeah. amazing thing where they all move together. Do you know how you can anticipate that is by looking at the outliers because you'll see one bird will fall behind and pull out to the left and you can pretty much guarantee that that's the direction the whole flock will turn next. We'll be back towards that one. Yeah. And they're not following that as a, as a leader. They're just including that divergent viewpoint and allowing that to slightly change the pattern for a moment. And then they'll go back the other way again, you know? Um, so you see the beautiful patterns that are made. If, if all the birds there were completely aligned with each other and there were no divergent weird outliers in the group, then they would all just fly together in one square across the sky until they ran into something. <laughs> and that you wouldn't have those beautiful patterns. <laughs> you know what Isn't I mean? Isn't that funny? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. you know, having a holistic viewpoint is, um, is kind of helpful. It's, yeah. So an Aboriginal lens on these things is, um, is an increase in rigor. It's not a, um, you know, some return to a paleolithic simplicity yeah. when, Know, times were less complex. Yeah. It's like now nah, they were more complex. In chapter six, you talk about the indigenous concept of gut. It's the seat, it's the heart, or it's the, the beginning of intelligence. What what is that about? The, the it's almost the second brain. Well, look, our highest knowledge in in Aboriginal cultures, and when we talk about law, you know, with the capital L, um, law and the law of the land, the law in the land, all these kinds of things. Um, you know, to come to any understanding of that, uh, the kind of thinking that you do would be more, you know, described as feeling. Like the, like a lot of our old people use that word feeling uh, for the process of cognition that you undertake. But that's not emotions. or It's not emotions or sensations. So what is the feeling? If you can uh, think of that for yourself now, what is the feeling that you have? that has no sensation and no emo and, and it's not emotion. What feeling that there, that, that cognition, that's a higher cognition. And that happens from your gut because that's your big spirit in there. That's your higher spirit. And that's, um, that's where it lives. <clears throat> comes out, spirals out, uh, from there. And, um, and you have to keep it clear because emotions actually can cloud it. So that's why you have to get, your emotions out. You have to express them, to express them all the time. Even if it seems violent to do so, you have to get them out. Otherwise they'll create a blockage there in your big spirit and you won't be able to feel properly for country. Yeah. You know, feeling for country is the intellectual process, the rigorous intellectual process of inquiry that goes on in your interaction as a custodial, custodial being. Sure. Can you hear that lawnmower? Sorry. No. I, I've got a lawnmower going. I think it's... Hmm. 
I got children going <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. in the background. So that's just life. Yeah, you talk about the breadth of Indigenous thinking and how we could apply it to most of the things that we're faced with today. One of them would be, you know, um, the economy, for example. You know, the economy is going through some tough times at the moment with COVID. You know, how would Indigenous thinking be applied to sort of getting ourselves or finding solutions or ways to view uh, the current situation we're in or long-term situations more from an economic standpoint i mean so yeah you you could apply indigenous logic to analyzing patterns within groups of people and projects that were committed to finding solutions and to returning to normal and to you know all of these kinds of things um but yeah really that would be like putting a saddle on a cow um, <laughs> cause I mean, I guess really, you know, within an indigenous paradigm, you know, it's, it's one of acceptance of the reality and adaptation. So, you know, where, I mean, the big gifts from our culture for people during the time of COVID is, um, uh, ways to adapt and thrive throughout times of transition in times of upheaval. Just quickly going back to the economic side of things, you talk about um, the dollar and how um, Indigenous thinking would see the dollar go through more hands as opposed to being stagnant and doing something that isn't as productive. What is that concept of increasing the velocity of the dollar? The economy is a system of flows. And, you know, in a proper culture um, where your, your culture, your economy, your society your environment are not separate things. You know, they're one thing. Then everything flows on the same pattern. So your economy, your economic system goes on the flows that are the pattern of that dynamic system. And left to its own devices, you know, um, a group of people, um, you know, who are informally sitting, like you'll see it at a car boot sale or whatever, you'll see um, a, a system of flows created, you know, within that group of people. And it's complex and it's dynamic and it's generative and it enriches everybody there. You know, when they're all trading together, that, that's how that works. Um, so the idea is that I, I guess, you know, from an Aboriginal point of view is that you would have increase rather than growth. Increase being that you increase the number of exchanges within a system. Uh, growth being that you would increase the size of the system. So increase from an Indigenous point of view is increasing the relationships and the connections and the flows of resources, knowledge, everything else. Uh, what's, a, what's an example of that? Yeah, well, um, so some people, you know, uh, and a lot of people propose that, um, that, you know, why are we printing more money? Why are we trying to increase the velocity of the dollar? So increase the velocity of the dollar, that means the amount of times that any given dollar changes hands. Within, within an economy because what you get then is a really robust, strong, thriving economy, which, um, you know, it, it may not be seen as a successful economy in terms of, you know, GDP growth or anything like that. But what it is is, is um, it, it produces a lot more prosperity on the ground for people. Where does that sit on the supply versus demand side ideological sort of yeah. equilibrium? Well, I mean, <laughs> I that's, that's just you know, a, yeah. it's just um, uh, basically it's not even a versus thing. It's just for economic growth to occur, there needs to be more demand than supply. 
so there needs to be people missing out in order for anything to have value and for the economy to grow, you know, and that's why you have inequality. Uh, it's not because some people are prejudiced against other people, you know, <laughs> the inequality is created by an economic system that demands it. And the prejudice is just a symptom of that. The prejudice is a comorbidity that comes out of an un, uh, uh, economic system that demands inequality. In, in the book, you say learning is an act of creation. It just leads me to my question. What is your sort of typical creative process? Well, I mean, I have, I have to sit within a, a framework of law and obligation and, um, you know, story and place, and I have to come into that first and, and just sort of sit and see where that's taking me. You know, look for those signs, let things come in. Um, and if people want to come in, you let them come in, you listen, they'll have a message for you. And you kind of let this emergence sort of happen just from sitting in the right dynamic space. And you, you let the, you kind of just allow, you allow creation to happen. You facilitate the conditions for creation to happen. And then you allow it to emerge. And I'm not talking about laissez faire, you know, how it paints my feelings. No. You know, yeah, don't don't be doing that and saying Tyson sent me. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 very full on because it's very rigorous, and you have to hold yourself, you know, accountable and keep checking your ego. And then, you know, when I feel that a, a concept is developed, I will I will carve that, you know, into an object, you know, with lots of story and interconnected story so that it becomes a part of that uh, sort of corpus of knowledge and that it's in the law as a tangible thing. It's in the world and I can pick that up and I can hold it and just download from that. So once that's done, once I have a carving that has all the knowledge, then I can think, well, what other modalities can I put this in? You know, so the stuff in the book about the first and second laws of thermodynamics, when you get to all that rainbow snake story, in the book you'll see, you know, so it's a, a, I did a bit of the book. So it was one modality for expressing something that I, I carved into a law stick, you know. Um, but then I also did that as a, an art installation in Melbourne, published a, a poem on the same thing. Um, so I've done like, uh, you know, various NTROs, non-traditional research outputs and stuff like that. I just express these things in as many modalities as possible. Uh, not the least of which is some yarns, you know, <laughs> you know, and seeing, seeing how I went with like, a, you know, talking to a native American theoretical physicist and seeing how many round, rounds I could go with him wow, with my yeah. silly ideas about <laughs> <laughs> thermodynamics, um, which wasn't long. Actually, I tapped out after about, you know, <laughs> three conversations. Can you just give us a, a quick snapshot of that, that thir- theory of thermodynamics? Oh, my goodness. Um, just- yeah, so, so basically first law of thermodynamics, um, you know, energy isn't created or destroyed, you know, in a chemical reaction. Things just change form. You, you burn a piece of paper, everything in that piece of paper isn't gone. It's just changed and gone across into different systems. You know, it's moved across between systems and elsewhere in the system. You know, with all the parts of that paper and the, particularly the energy that still exists, even the energy, the heat from the flame, that hasn't fucking just disappeared. That still exists in the universe. So that's the first law of thermodynamics. Sure. And <clears throat> first law, I like to equate with the idea of first peoples, the knowledge of first peoples. 
and particularly the the way we view time, which would be as something that that a series of dynamic cycles and uh, that move across different systems over time. Uh, you know, so sure. Yeah. Second law, which I like to of thermodynamics, which I like to think of as the law of time for the second peoples. <laughs> Um, it is uh, what gives rise in physics to what they call the arrow of time. Second law of thermodynamics is that in a closed system, simplicity, which is disorder, you know, entropy, decay, uh, increases over time. So if you have a vacuum, then any uh, and you place a complex uh, entity in there, that will break down and simplify. Yeah, so that's the second law of thermodynamics. And that's to me, and that, that produces the arrow of time. Um, but, you know, my question is, what's this fucking closed system? Do we live in a closed system? Yeah. How is that an appropriate model of time? Anyway, so I, I propose that the first law of thermodynamics is a better theory, model of time from an indigenous perspective. And I thought I was a proper clever dick, but then I found out that uh, Charles Darwin said the same thing <laughs> back in the day. No one listened to him either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you ever get creative block and how do you overcome it? Nah, it's just creative. There's no such thing as a creative block. It just means you're out of relation. So look to your relations, um, human and non-human and particularly with place. I've heard you talk about something. Um, you went. You wanted to um, work with someone who it was, it was an elder who carved traditionally yeah. dug out canoes, and I think it yeah. was up the top end somewhere. And you spoke beautifully about um, that story. And I wondered if you could share a bit of that. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's to do with boundary protocols and stuff as well, you know. Because uh, I had been brought in to that country and had permission to be there and everything, but this was clearly like a you know, a man of some knowledge, and he was carving a canoe. I, I'd been carving canoes for a bit, you know, um, uh, back up home, dug out canoes. And, you know, so I was interested. <clears throat> and, you know, you're always keen to understand, you know, from a master. Um, yeah, so my way of coming in, it's, it's incremental. So, you know, I, I stood quite a distance off. Um, from him like stood there for a minute and, and and waited until I could see that he'd seen me in his out of the corner of his eye. And then I just sat down. So I sat down there and I wasn't looking directly at him. I was facing slightly away. Um, and just feeling for, you know, um, wanting to come into that knowledge in that place. And I sat there for about an hour and eventually he looks over, over at me and he lifts up his eyes and goes, come. And so, you know, I come over and then, you know, we um, make our introductions. So we know who we are, where we're from and all that kind of thing. And yeah. And he starts showing me his, his business starts teaching me the canoe. I didn't get to learn much though. Cause he had um, like, he get, you know, especially in the Northern territory, you get anybody who's like an elder or a, you know, a knowledge keeper. They tend to have a, a lot of people tend to have like um, white handlers, <laughs> like self-appointed uh, non-Aboriginal gatekeepers, and um, those ones they must have been off for lunch or something. 
for that period, but they, they sort of saw what was going on and they just ran over and one of them like shoved me with his shoulder out of the way and the other one ripped the tools out of the old man's hands and started himself hacking away at the canoe. And the old man like just, um, and I started to feel it coming up in me, just real anger, like rage. And I was about to blast him, you know. But then I watched the old man and I just saw him go back into himself like a snail, like very peacefully but very strongly and with a lot of agency. And I went, oh, you just showed me something better than making a canoe. Oh, Bella. Yeah, that's, um, that's very special. And I went, I, I sat with that for about three years thinking about that one. And then, then I started trying it out and it helped me in a lot of my interactions. It must be such a disparity, like living there and being so close mm. to your country, your, your people and a certain lifestyle which is, I, I feel, a little more honest. You, we get down to this domestic kind of um, metropolis of Melbourne or Sydney or whatever else, and we're so detached from it. What are some of the sort of clear differences? Mm. It's the disconnection. It's the disconnection between everybody who lives here, even within their own houses. Yeah, there's no um, social density it's it's there's population density which is awful but there's no social density or you know everybody else alienated and just suffering and you know <laughs> there are a lot of people suffering in melbourne it's very expensive to be here to live here and you got to work real hard and you better you, you know <laughs> and you know they're they're openly planning to double the population in the next 10 years for Melbourne. Um, it's just absolute insanity. A lot of incentives to breed, not a lot of incentives to raise kids right or anything. You know, an Aboriginal community is a place that's, that's geared, it's, you know, when it's, when it's right, when it's happening the right way, how it's supposed to happen under our law, you know, it's a, it's a place of, that honors and nurtures the mother and child and everything's geared for that. It's a place where there aren't any spaces that aren't designed for children to grow in, you know, but a city that there's, there's nowhere for kids to be. And there's even worse, particularly there's nowhere. It's a particularly hostile environment for mothers. What do you think that is? I mean, why, why is it? Why is it like the the nurturing aspect? They say it takes a village to raise a child. Why hasn't that held true in this current sort of um, societal economic environment whereby, yeah, you're right, we just spit them out and then we have people fend for themselves? And The system, it, it needs uh, dysfunctional people in order to, to function. Yeah, you can't have, if you had a whole you know, an entire society of, of well-adjusted human beings with agency, then the system wouldn't work. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I guess these are the things that an Indigenous world you, gives you if, you if you really do bring that lens to, it, to an, an analysis of things. You dig down to the foundational story. You dig down to the, the true story at the heart of the matter. Look, I, I think what we're going to do with Indigenous thinking really is just to accept 
accept the world's problems. Yes. Find acceptance, then the strength to be able to become the adaptive beings that we need to become to survive the collapse of this system. But we need to make sure that we've just got a few habits of thinking in mind that allow us to be adaptive enough to survive this hard landing that's coming. Because there ain't no soft landing here. It's going to be hard. You're going to need to be able to move with the country. Would you say if you were to distill your philosophy into a sentence, would it be that, move with the country? What would would it be? My philosophy is different at the end of this yarn than it was at the start of it because yours has affected it. All I am is the stories I interact with. Yeah, if I were to quote you, bite of wisdom you could leave people with, what would Um, that be then? For now, for today, for this very second. I don't have any wisdom. Oh, although I have the algorithm for wisdom if you want that. (laughs) What is that? So this is, uh, someone asked me for a, a wisdom quote. And I said, no, but I can give you the algorithm and then you can make your own. Okay, so you just take any idea and then you combine it with its opposite and you've got your indigenous wisdom. (laughs) Okay, so, um, you know, if you need to learn to go faster, first you need to slow down. I love that. I love that. If you want to stop the fires, you have to light a few first. Yes. Just just anything, you know, um, uh, if you don't master your rage, then rage will become your master. And that quote, if anyone gets that reference, they'll get where I got the algorithm from which was the movie uh, Mystery Men. And uh, they have yeah, an indigenous... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one of the superheroes is just... He's a Native American superhero, and nobody quite knows what his power is, except yeah. that he's terribly wise. One of them, like, unpacks it in the end and says, you just, you just say the opposite of what the first part of the sentence is, and that's your superpower. <laughs> Jesus! Anyway... But that's true. That's that's that's, oh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's your that's your wisdom that's formula. True. So you know the wisdom yeah. formula, mate. I'm going to take that. That works for me. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I've taken so much of your time, Tyson. Thank you so much, man. We're going to solve all the world's problems, and we're going to do it with Indigenous thinking. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. No I really want to chat to you again at some point. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they reach out if they want to chat to you or read more about your work? You know, I wrote the book with um, proper relationships with readers in mind. I thought it would only sell a few hundred and that I could honor those relationships, but I just can't. There's too many thousands of people now. Um, and just if we're paths supposed to cross, then they will like yours and mine did. You know, I'm not, I, I, I do the LinkedIn thing for work just for professional stuff, but I don't do any social media or anything. And I'm just, you know, I'm around like, <laughs> where do we get your book? Where do we buy a sand talk? Um, I got it from Dimmix, so if that helps. Shops. <laughs> Shops. Shops. I think Amazon's doing yeah, it yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, when are you going to do the audio book, man? I'm a massive fan of the audio books. Yeah, I think uh, Audible. Audible's going to Audible's going to put it out now. Uh, I think they, they've got the world rights now, and they're just going to distribute that everywhere now. Are you going to do the narrative, the VO, the voiceover for it? No, I've done that already. It's just uh, it, it's only available in the States at the moment. Oh, man. I didn't know. I... Yeah, yeah. In the meantime... Tyson, thanks, man. Thank you so much. God bless you and your no family, worries, brother. I, I hope there's something you can use in all that. There will be, man. There will be, I'm sure. Okay. All right, brother. We'll catch you after. Will do, mate. Cheers. Yeah. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers.